folks. This is the Oncolog conference call, um, uh, June 26, 2008. Uh, the panel discussion is entitled Rules and Semantic Web Applications. Uh, we're going to have three speakers. Uh, we wanted to have uh, uh, Mike Dean uh, join us, but uh, he had a conflict, and so we're going to probably have a second session uh, at some point in the future. Um, who we have today uh, in this order will be Dr. Uh, Joe Stebrine, uh, uh, Mr. Martin O'Connor, and um, I'll talk at the end uh, before our discussion period. Um, what I suggest is that you hold off on your questions and uh, use uh, the chat or um, the uh, phone method to uh, kind of queue up uh, when you do have a question uh, or when the session is open for questions and answers uh, that you um, uh, just speak in the phone. Uh, we want to maintain some order, which is why we uh, uh, put the queues um, so everyone has a chance to ask their questions. Um, we're going to have about 20 minutes uh, per speaker, uh, since we have the three speakers. Uh, so uh, what I'd like to do is uh, introduce uh, Dr. Joseph Dubrine. Uh, he is going to be talking first. He received his Ph.D. Uh, degree in computer science from the University of Innsbruck, Austria, uh, 2008. And uh, since uh, 2007, he has been an assistant professor at the Faculty of Computer Science at the Free University of Bolzana, uh, Italy. His research interests include semantic web services, uh, languages, logical languages, logic programming, and non-monotonic reasoning. He's the co-author of 30-plus uh, peer-reviewed publications, including several books and journal publications. He's also taught courses about semantic web in the master curricula of the University of Innsbruck and at the uh, Free University of Bolzano, Italy. Uh, Joe has been actively involved in uh, many uh, standards projects and including the European projects, uh, COG, uh, ASG, uh, SEKT, DIP, DIP, and Knowledge Web. Uh, he's also a member of the W3C RIF uh, working group. Uh, and he's going to be talking now, um, and uh, the title of his talk is, if I can find it here, uh, is uh, RIF uh, Standard Rules Language for the Semantic Web. Uh, uh, Hi, uh Thank you very much, Leo, for the introduction. Um, so, well, first of all, um, as mentioned by Leo, I'm now at the University of uh, Bolzano in Italy, so um, actually for me it's already uh, getting a bit later at 8 p.m. So I'm uh, not entirely fresh uh, anymore as you can imagine. So I hope uh, you can forgive me. Um, so uh, but then what I'm uh, going to talk about is uh, more or less a continuation of a talk uh, given by Chris Welty in the Ontolog conference two weeks ago. He talked about um, the RIF uh, basic logic dialect language, um, which is a web language uh, for the exchange of rules between um, rule systems. Um, now, of course, uh, one recognizes that on the web there are several other languages, uh, notably for the representation of uh, data and ontologies in the form of uh, RDF, RDFS, and OWL, 
these are collectively called the semantic web languages. And obviously, in a rules language, you would like to be able to exploit um, these, uh, the data available in these languages and also the data models expressed in these languages. And in fact, also an important use case that we consider is um, to extend uh, ontologies with rules. So certain kinds of knowledge cannot be expressed um, using typical ontology languages such as RDFS and OWL, um, and, but which can be conveniently expressed using rules, and one would like to use uh, a rule language for that. Now, um, the RIF language itself, as uh, Chris presented it two weeks ago, um, is not based on RDF. It's not based on OWL. So then the question is, well, um, how do we um, make these uh, languages uh, fit together? And uh, what I'm going to talk about is um, the, the way the RIF working group uh, proposes uh, to tie the languages together. In fact, uh, we are uh, together with the specification of the language, the basic logic dialect, we are creating a specification of how this interoperates uh, or should interoperate with uh, RDF and OWL. And we, uh, within the, the uh, coming few weeks, we expect the last call working draft of both documents. Um, okay, so if we go now to slide two. Um, so what I want to do here is first uh, briefly recap the languages we are uh, talking about here. So first of all, we have uh, data languages and ontology languages, which we uh, want to consider on the semantic web. So the basic data language we consider as a resource description framework, probably familiar um, to most of you. Um, the only thing we can say basically in this language is these very simple kind of subject predicate object uh, statements. Um, with one additional thing, you can express this kind of uh, class membership. So you can say, well, my object A is of type C or John is of type person, etc. But the basic statement is, uh, well, you have an object A with a property B and this property has value B. Um, now, this, uh, this kind of typing and these properties are a way to tie this already into ontology languages. So based on that, several ontology languages have been developed on the semantic web. First of all, where there was uh, RDF schema, which uh, semantically extends uh, RDF and defines semantics for a uh, certain ontology construct, which are expressed using uh, RDF statements, in fact. So our RDF schema, uh, the key aspects of this language is that the syntax is exactly the same as for RDF. You just have additional semantics. So uh, in formal terms, you have more entailments with the same graph. Now, uh, ALFU uh, further extends uh, RDF schema, so it defines semantics for additional um, constructs. But it is, uh, but the extension is uh, similar in spirit to RDF schema, so it is again the same the same syntax as RDF, but more semantics uh, to accommodate these additional ontology modeling constructs. And finally, there is uh, this third ontology language, which is called on the slide OWL-DL. Um, I will just call it OWL-DL here. Um, syntactically, uh, it is a subset of RDF. However, it uh, assigns a different semantics to it. 
and this semantics is uh, defined in terms of so-called abstract syntax, which is not RDF. Um, but there is a way to exchange uh, all light DL ontologies uh, using RDF. But this uh, fact that there is this abstract syntax which has semantics, this is uh, um, important to keep in mind for the uh, combination with RIF we discuss later on. Now, if we go then to slide number three, so the third uh, category of languages we consider here are rules languages. Well, one uh, rule language in particular, which is the rule interchange format basic logic dialect, which is the basic rule language uh, developed by RIF so far. Um, as Chris probably mentioned two weeks ago, uh, there will be other sort of dialects in the future uh, to accommodate production rules and to accommodate more expressive logical rules, but we focus for now on this basic logic dialect, which, are, which is essentially a language for horn rules with equality. Um, and, uh, well, there are certain syntactical, uh, there's certain syntactic sugar for additional modeling constructs, and we have things such as uh, data types to make it a useful language, built-ins, and these kinds of things. Um, now, then, how do we uh, throw these um, three things together? Uh, the rules, the ontologies, and the data. Um, and, well, what are, the, what are the basic use cases we want to support? Um, well, first of all, you, um, you for executing your rules, to do, for doing something useful with your rules, you need data to execute the rules on. So RDF graphs uh, as a data set for rules, this is uh, um, a, very, uh, or a very straightforward uh, way to go. Uh, then another use case is uh, you might want to have a particular data model uh, for your rules, which might be defined in uh, RDFS or in OWL. And then uh, you might also consider uh, rules as extensions to uh, RDF or our ontologies in order to capture more of your domain knowledge. Now, in order to realize all these uh, use cases, to um, enable them, we need to define how these um, uh, languages uh, interoperate. So um, what we did in, uh, in our specification of uh, RIF, RDF, and OWL compatibility is define uh, the interoperation by connecting the semantics of RIF, RDF, and OWL. All three languages have, uh, have a model theory, and we, we glue them together. So um, if we now go to slide four, uh, there's um, an overview of the remainder of the talk. So what I will discuss is the syntax of what these combinations we're talking about, the, a brief overview of the semantics, and uh, finally, I um, want to show that for large uh, class of these combinations, so say you want to combine your rules with uh, RDF uh, data or with RDFS ontologies or even with a subset of OWL, you can embed this complete combination uh, into RIF rules uh, so that you can use a rule engine for, uh, for reasoning with uh, these combinations. Let's go to slide number five. So um, this is entitled Importing uh, RDF and OWL. So it is about the syntax or how to refer to um, RDF graphs and uh, OWL ontologies. So within a RIF document or rule set, 
you can uh, include this kind of statements, this kind of import statements, where you have an import uh, which takes two arguments. First, uh, the location of the, the RDF graph, because, well, all RDF graphs, RDFS ontologies, and all ontologies are represented using RDF graphs, so we need, simply need a, a URI to refer to the location of the graph. And then a crucial second argument is the profile which says how the RDF graph uh, should be interpreted. So whether you should interpret it as just a simple data set, so this is called simple entailment in the RDF world, an RDFS ontology, or perhaps even an LDL ontology. Um, and this, as we will see later on, this profile determines how you should interpret this, inter uh, this imported graph, uh, and it has an associated notions of, um, of models, of satisfiability, and of entailment. Um, but now for the remainder, we use uh, a more abstract notion of uh, combination. We say that um, a RIF-RDF combination is simply a tuple uh, consisting of um, uh, a RIF document, a rule set, and a set of RDF graphs, which, are, of course, the, the concrete syntax would be you use this kind of import statements. But for the remainder, we use this kind of abstract syntax. And then um, for... Uh, for the particular case that you have LDL uh, ontologies, because uh, the semantics of LDL is defined in terms of um, an abstract syntax, we also use the abstract syntax for uh, all ontologies here. So in this RIF-LDL combination, is a combination of a, a RIF rule set and a set of all ontologies in abstract syntax form. And uh, crucial also in this, in this combination, in the RIF-LDL combination, in order to stay faithful uh, with the LDL semantics, um, we cannot have something like quantification over class or property names. So uh, in the rule set, you may not have variables in class or property positions, which is allowed in the RIF-RDF combinations because that does fit well with the RDF semantics. Now let's go to slide number six. Um, here uh, is kind of uh, a, a mapping, an informal mapping between the kind of statements in uh, RDF and AL versus kind of statements in RIF. Um, it shows the equivalence, how how you write the same symbol in, in these two different uh, syntaxes. So um, first, uh, well, IRI, uh, literals, type literals, uh, these are all quite straightforward. There are some quirks in, in, in uh, say, in the different languages, which Make, which make you uh, write the symbols a little bit differently, but that is not really the point. Uh, now, blank note is uh, something more important to keep in mind. Um, so I wrote here mapping between blank note and uh, variable, but actually there is no such thing as a blank note in RIF. Uh, the concept does not exist. However, there is something similar, which is an existentially quantified variable, which is... Uh, which uh, is semantically uh, just about equivalent to a blank note, um, but you are not allowed to write it in rule heads because, remember, RIF is uh, a horn language. Um, okay, and then if we look at statements, uh, the bottom we have uh, uh, RDF uh, triples, like the subject, predicate, object triple, and uh, the correspondence in RIF will be a frame formula. So if you want to refer to uh, RDF triples, the RDF graph, you would use... Uh, frame formulas with variables, of course, uh, in your rule bodies, and then you can also in the rule heads, and you can uh, draw conclusions uh, from the RDF data. 
Now, our class membership um, and our property value are also embedded as, uh, or, well, not really embedded, but they correspond uh, to frames here. Um, we wanted to have a uniform syntax between the um, RDF combination and the OWL combination so that you can use uh, more or less the same rule set for uh, combining with RDFS ontologies, LDL ontologies, and all uh, full ontologies, except, of course, remember that we cannot allow variables in class and property positions when combining with LDL. Let's go to slide number seven. Um, here we have an example. Um, we have an RDF graph which uh, says that John is a brother of uh, something. Um, this is uh, the, um, the syntax of a blank note, the X, and this something is the parent of Mary. Um, now we have a rule set with one uh, simple rule which says that uh, if X is a brother of Y and Y is a parent of uh, Z, then X is uncle of Z. This is kind of a classic uh, example of extending ontologies with rules kind of thing, you typically cannot say this in uh, ontology languages. Um, and now from the combination, as we will see uh, later, we can derive um, the expected frame formula that John is an uncle of Mary, um, and also the triple uh, John is an uncle of Mary. So we allow derivation both of um, RIF, uh, what we call condition formulas, which you can see as queries, uh, and of uh, RDF graphs as we will see later in the definition. Uh, let's go to slide number eight. Um, so if we uh, look at the semantics, um, as I mentioned, uh, we have here these uh, three model theories. Um, so RIF, RDF, and LDL. Uh, so first, if we look at the RDF uh, model theory, essentially this has uh, a number of notions of interpretations and associated notions of satisfiability and entailment. These are simple entailment, RDF entailment, RDFS, uh, deep or data type entailment, and Alful entailment. Even though Alful is defined in, in a separate document, it, is, it uses the RDF model theory, so you can see it as part of the RDF model theory. And the difference uh, between all these kinds of interpretations is simply that, are, that the one kind imposes more, more conditions on interpretations uh, than the other. Um, so these are these are all very similar. Um, um, okay, LDL um, yeah has like I mentioned a completely separate model theory. Uh, now the semantics of a combination is then based on connection of the model theories. So uh, we have the connection of an, of a RIF interpretation, an LDL interpretation, uh, and uh, an RDF interpretation, and to use the RIF interpretation to interpret the rules, the RDF interpretation to interpret the RDF graphs, the OWL interpretation to interpret the OWL uh, ontologies, and then a number of conditions are um, defined to connect the model theories to get the um, expected correspondence. So let's go to the next slide, number nine. Um, uh, so about if we look five at minutes the, too, uh, Yep, okay, thanks. Um, uh, if we look at the semantics of combination, like I said, we use the uh, RIF interpretation to uh, interpret the rule set, the RDF interpretation to interpret the graphs. So what we call here a common interpretation is simply a pair of a RIF interpretation and RDF interpretation. So this, is the, this case for RDF, for LDL, it is uh, similar. Uh, and like I said, we have a number of conditions that must hold. I, I list here um, 
a couple of examples. You can look in the specification for a complete list. Of course, I will not repeat that here. But uh, some examples uh, are that the domains of interpretation must be the same, um, so that in both cases you speak about the same set of objects. Uh, the interpretation of IRIs and well-typed literals must be the same, so so you denote an identifier with the same object. So in both cases, if you talk about the uh, the, um, uh, the IRI John, in both cases it will point to the same object in both the rule set and uh, the RDF graph. And like I said, uh, interpretation of triples corresponds with interpretation of frame formulas. So if a triple is satisfied in RDF interpretation, the corresponding frame must be satisfied in a RIF interpretation. Um, so that is uh, mentioned in, in the second uh, bullet. And then uh, we define entailment for graphs and uh, RIF condition formulas, which are queries, um, well, in, in the expected way. Basically. So let's go to slide 10. Um, I don't have too much time to talk about the embedding, uh, so I will uh, keep it uh, quick. So this was essentially definition of uh, the semantics. Um, I, I skipped here definition of the LDL semantics, but this is, is defined uh, similarly. Um, now also in the embedding, I will only talk about uh, the embedding for the RDF uh, part. So uh, what can be done is we take this kind of this combination, which consists of this um, rule set and this bunch of RDF graphs, and we can um, we can uh, embed this whole combination in a single uh, rule set. So what we do is we embed the graphs as uh, sets of facts and scholomizing the blank nodes, uh, embed the rule set as a rule set. Then the profile, so our simple RDF RDFs needs to be axiomatized. So for example, subclass semantics axiomatize this, and if you want to check uh, entailment of a condition, well, you embed the condition as a condition, and if you want to check entailment of a graph, you embed the graph as a conjunction of frame formulas uh, where uh, the blank nodes are existentially quantified variables. Um, of course, we cannot uh, scholomize here because uh, uh, blank nodes have this behavior of existentially quantified variables. And then... Uh, as expected, well, we have if the embedding of the combination uh, entails this, the, the condition or the graph, then uh, the combination entailment holds, etc. So it's faithful. So look, let's briefly look at an example. Uh, I will not take much more than one minute. Uh, on slide 11, um, we have here a simple um, graph which says that John is a member of student council. A student is a subclass of person. And we have a single rule that if X is a member of student council, because John is a member of student council, that he is uh, a student. Uh, and we have a graph T, which is there, uh, there exists uh, a person, essentially. Uh, and we expect, uh, actually also in this combination, because John is a student and student is a subclass of person, so John is a person, so there must exist a person. So let's go to slide 12. There we see the embedding. Uh, as expected, the graph is embedded as... Uh, uh, set of statements. Then we have the, embed, uh, the axiomatization of the RDFS uh, profile. This includes, among other things, this particular rule, which says that if you have a subclass statement, the type is inherited, uh, and the query, uh, sorry, the graph T is embedded as this uh, simple query that exists in X, which is of type uh, person. And uh, as expected, of course, this uh, entailment holds. Um, okay. 
So uh, that is uh, that is basically it uh, from my side. You see on slide 13 uh, the bibliography. Um, so reference to to the RIF basic language. And the stuff I've been talking about is in the RIF uh, IDF and uh, OWL compatibility document, which is the second bullet. And for completeness, I included uh, references to the RDF uh, and uh, OWL semantics documents as well. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Joseph. Uh, folks, I'll, I'll again direct you to, uh, let's say, the chat line if you want to phrase your questions in advance uh, for Joseph. Uh, and uh, it's possible that he could reply to you uh, if he's on the chat. Uh, but uh, in any case, that'll uh, be placeholders for our uh, Q&A later. Um, okay, our second speaker is uh, Martin O'Connor. Uh, Martin is uh, currently a member of the research staff at the Center for Biomedical Informatics Research uh, at Stanford Medical School. Uh, before joining Stanford, uh, he worked for several years at IBM Watson uh, in Yorktown Heights, New York. Uh, at Stanford, he's in, uh, been involved in the development of the EON system, which is a component-based architecture for developing decision support systems for uh, guideline-based care. He also developed the Cronus uh, temporal query system uh, used to perform temporal queries on biomedical data. Uh, he's also uh, currently involved in the development of Biostorm, which is a system to evaluate intelligent systems uh, for epidemic detection and characterization. Uh, along with uh, the, the Biostorm efforts, he's been investigating the use of rules and query languages uh, on the semantic web. And he's uh, currently developing this SWIRL tab uh, in Protege, uh, Protege Isle-based, uh, which will be a development environment for the semantic web rule language swirl. Uh, uh, Martin will uh, talk on uh, knowledge integration with swirl. Martin? Hi, thank you. Okay, so uh, today I'm going to talk about um, swirl and, and specifically how we're using swirl in um, in a number of projects here. So basically at, um, at Stanford, Center for Biomedical Informatics Research, which was formerly called SMI, we, um, we do a lot of um, ontology development work and uh, tool development work, usually centered around, though not exclusively, um, medical informatics. So we, we, we typically build both tools and, and applications using those tools, usually, as I, in, as I said, in, in the medical domain. So here I'm going to talk today about um, some tools we've developed uh, to, to work with Swirl, and also I'm going to show how we, we've uh, used those tools to tackle the issue of, of data integration in, in some of the applications we have, we have developed. Uh, so slide two, please. Okay, so the, the outline of the talk, I'm going to give um, a very brief introduction to Swirl, um, just for, for, for people who do not know what Swirl is. Um, again, as I said, it will be a very, very brief introduction. And then I'll show how we'll, we'll use, uh, we use Swirl and, um, in, in a number of areas, particularly in, in knowledge integration. And, and there are four sort of, sort of sub-tasks or, or knowledge integration tasks that we've tackled so far, and there are others that we're thinking about. But basically, one of the issues um, is, is querying, which is a form of knowledge integration in the sense of you're basically extracting information from ontologies and putting it into an application. Um, and there are two main types of, of uh, formats we're currently supporting um, in terms of integration. That is XML and relational database formats. 
and also uh, we have some small support at the moment for dealing with Excel and CSV files. Uh, those are the two main areas we've concentrated on so far. We're hoping to support other formats uh, ultimately. And also I'll talk briefly at the end about uh, ontology integration, which I think Mike Dean was going to talk about when he was here, but um, it, it also sort of applies. He, he uses Swirl in, in a tool called Snuggle to do ontology integration, and um, he's found it quite useful. So basically I'm going to uh, talk about Swirl and then show how we've used it in, in, in building some applications and, and particularly to tackle the data integration issue in those applications. So slide three, please. So uh, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with Swirl, it stands for Semantic Web Rule Language. Um, the initial goal of Swirl was, was to be the Semantic um, web, web Rule Language, at least in terms of OWL. So the important thing to note about uh, Swirl is that it's a, unlike RIF, it's not a general uh, rule language for, for the Semantic Web. It's really uh, a rule language that's tailored uh, exclusively to OWL. And the syntax and semantics and so on of Swirl are basically um, completely defined in terms of, of OWL concepts. And it's, it's, it's essentially a, a horn-like language. And in terms of expressivity, it's probably fairly close to, to, to the RIF core. Um, but the important point about Swirl is that it's, uh, it's an OWL uh, rule language. And all of the concepts that you talk about in, in terms of in Swirl are, are OWL concepts. So it's Swirl, Swirl doesn't actually really even understand RDF per se. It's really uh, every, every concept expressed in a Swirl rule is, is, is effectively a, an OWL concept. So next slide. So just to give you a very brief example of what a swirl looks like, this, the that swirl rule looks like. The syntax is, is quite simple. Um, you have basically an antecedent and a consequent. You only have conjunctions in, in the uh, rules that doesn't support disjunction or ors. It uh, doesn't support negated atoms. So the, the rules themselves are, are quite simple. And this, this is an example rule that basically determines if a person um, has an age of greater than a particular, greater than 17, then classifies them as an adult. And all of the, all of the terms in this rule um, are owl terms. So, for example, the person question mark P is a, talks about an owl, the individuals of, of an owl class called person. The has age um, atom talks about um, the property has age and basically tries to find um, uh, the, the, the values of a property associated with the person that you've all previously defined. Um, so the rules are not freeform. The, the, the entities in the rule are, are owl entities only. Um, and then the, the third atom in, in the rule are, is, is so-called built-in, which is one of the, the, um, the quite, quite nice features of Swirl and that has a built-in mechanism that supports a lot of standard operators that you'd expect, like um, mathematical operators and string operators. But it also has a, a, the ability to extend these, um, these, these built-ins, so you can actually define your own built-ins, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So this built-in here effectively takes uh, the age variable which you bound and compares it with 17 in this case, and, and then um, it, um, it, it, uh, it will return true if the, if the predicate is satisfied. And then if the, if, the, if the entire antecedent is satisfied, it will basically um, assert something. And in this case, it will assert that the, uh, the individuals that you've identified that, um, are, are classified as adults. And, and again, the, the nice feature about this rule is that it, um, the, the conclusions that you reach are our conclusions. So basically here you reclassified an individual. Um, and that conclusion um, is, is, um, is, is assertable back into the knowledge base. So next slide. Um, so, um, which is one of the, the nicer features of, of Swirl in terms of its owl semantics. It's, it's, the semantics are also rigidly defined in terms of LDL, in terms of description logic. So, when you write rules, you can actually think of them as additional axioms that you add to your ontology. They're not sort of separate thing, separate entities. They're not separate pieces of code that have their own semantics. They actually have semantics completely in terms of owl. Um, 
which means that uh, when you make conclusions using rules, you can safely assert those back into the knowledge base. And then, of course, you can chain rules and make further assertions. But the important thing is that um, you can um, you can basically add these rules to the ontology and distribute them with the ontology and consider consider them as part of the ontology, which is one of the nice nicer features of, of Swirl in the sense that it's um, you, there are obviously many different rule engines out there and you can load your ontology and translate it and, and deal with them in other rule engines. But the thing about Swirl, it has a nice standard semantics which different tools can, can implement and, and you can safely interchange your rules in the same way as you can interchange um, normal owl ontologies. So next slide. So we built... Um, six now. Uh, number six, sorry, yes. Um, so we built um, a number of tools um, around Swirl, basically, that work in the Prodigy OWL environment. The, the wiki link is at the top of the page here. Um, the, the tools are fairly standard ones, like we have an editor. We also have a, a bridge that allows you to have different back engines, because Swirl, obviously, is just a language spec. You need implementations behind that. So currently, we support both Pellet as a back end and a, a custom Jest implementation of Swirl. Hopefully, we're going to support um, a Jenna implementation soon. Um, one of the things we've been concentrating on a lot is, is building a, a bunch of, uh, of built-in libraries to, to deal with different, uh, with different um, types of information. And um, we, we have quite a few libraries at the moment. For example, we have a temporal library to, to that allows you to deal with temporal information to do temporal reasoning, which is very important in the, the sort of the biomedical uh, applications that we, we, we implement. Um, and we also have some querying and stuff that I'll, I'll talk about. So this, 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 uh, this, all this software is available as part of Protogel and can be downloaded for free. It's open source and can be extended and, and, and so on. Next slide. So we've um, developed these tools, number seven. We've developed these tools, and um, as I said, most of the work we do here in Beamer is uh, centered on both tools and also on actually using those tools in, in biomedical applications. So there are four main areas that I'll talk about briefly. We, um, we've developed some querying abilities um, using Swirl, or using extensions to Swirl, actually. And then we've tackled the data integration problem using, um, using Swirl, and also the, um, the ontology merging or mapping problem. Uh, next slide, number eight. So Swirl uh, itself is, is not a query language. It's, it's a rule language. But um, we, we found a pressing need for a query language when we were dealing with our ontologies. And obviously, Sparkle exists out there as a query language, but it's, a, it's an RDF query language. And it's uh, extremely awkward to use with, um, with OWL because it doesn't really understand OWL semantics. Um, and, for example, the representation of complicated OWL um, entities uh, in, in, in RDF can be, can be arbitrarily complicated. So the actual resulting um, Sparkle queries can be both syntactically very hard to write, but also the semantics can be very, can be very vague, to put it, put it mildly. So we, 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 we saw a need for, um, for an actual rule or a query language based directly on OWL, because in our applications, we, we were using OWL to drive or to configure our applications, and we wanted to obviously extract information from those ontologies um, in our applications. And obviously, you can do that at the, at the API level, writing Java code, but it's nice to be able to make high-level sort of queries in the same way as you can make SQL queries against databases and to extract that information at a high knowledge level rather than at a very low API-based Java level. So we have developed an extension to, to Swirl, which we call Squirrel, which stands for um, Semantic Query Enhanced Web Rule Language, which effectively acts as a, 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 an OWL query language. And that's on next slide, number nine. 
just to give a brief sense of, of what it looks like. Um, so as I said, Swirl has a built-in mechanism that allows you to define new built-ins. So here we've defined a set of built-ins um, that look very like or have uh, sort of terms very similar to sort of SQL in the sense that you can construct um, a table or format a table as a result of a query. So what you do with a query effectively is replace the consequent of a rule with, um, with sort of a formatting statement almost. So these, these, this rule has an antecedent like a normal throw rule and it looks identical to it, um, but the consequent actually sort of allows you to format the information. So this is a rule that essentially does nothing in the sense of, of swirl, but it, uh, in sense of querying, it actually allows you to build a two-dimensional structure in the same way as you build a two-dimensional structure with a SQL query. So the, um, effectively, this rule will return a two-dimensional table with a set of persons and their age if that, those persons are over 17. And the nice thing about this uh, query is that it's, um, it's syntactically and semantically compatible with Swirl in the sense that it doesn't change the semantics of Swirl in any way, and you can save this, um, this rule this query, should I say, um, with a normal swirl ontology, um, because the, 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 the extensions are all extensions via the built-in mechanism, so I haven't uh, changed the language in any way. Um, I've just implemented a new built-in library, effectively, that, that sort of does this. So it's a nice extension point without breaking the language, without uh, requiring additional parsing, for example, or without requiring a, a, a sort of a, a deeper sort of understanding of what new sem the new semantics will, will be. So uh, next slide, please, number 10. Um, again, just another query to give you a, a, a flavor. This is the same as the, uh, the last query, except that it, it orders the result. So basically, there are a set of built-ins that, that are provided in the Squirrel built-in library that allow you to do SQL-like operators when you, when, to, uh, to format or to, to, sort of to, um, to organize the information that you get back. So here, the order by built-in basically um, orders the results in a particular way. And um, you can basically then run these queries um, and um, get the results back. And there, and there are two mechanisms in, in, in this world tab for getting this back. You can embed this in a Java application in the same way as you would uh, uh, SQL with JDBC, for example. And there's also what's called uh, the Squirrel Query tab, which is basically a graphical interface that will allow you to dynamically make these queries and display the results on the screen. And you can download this um, uh, with ProtoJL. So um, next slide, please, number 11. So um, the, the use of Swirl as a query language um, is, is attractive for us because it allows us to, um, well, firstly, the semantics are clearer than Sparkle, and, and the, 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 um, we don't have to worry about low-level formatting information. So OWL obviously can be expressed in RDF, but if you use very complicated OWL constructs, they can look really, really nasty in, in, in RDF, and, and making queries on those is, is very, very hard. Um, and, and, I mean, it's basically a syntactic operation at that point. Um, and also the semantics of the resulting results are not necessarily all that clear either. Um, and uh, so this, this is an OWL-based language, and um, it's extensible uh, itself because, obviously, within the query language, then you can use any built-ins that you could use in Swirl. So, for example, you could use the built-in library that's provided, sorry, the, the temporal built-in library that's provided to make uh, temporal queries. And we've been expanding this, this, uh, these sets of libraries over, over the past year or so. So it's, a, it's a, not only is it a, it's a basically a query language that can also grow um, by, by basically implementing new built-ins. And we have, a, we have a mechanism in this world tab for actually users to be able to, build, to implement their own built-ins in Java and run them from, from rules. And that's, that's also documented on the wiki if you'd like to look at that. So next page, please. Okay, so that was, that was sort of um, one sort of uh, angle of information integration, the ability to pull information out of ontologies into Java applications. Um, another thing that we've been dealing with a lot is uh, XML mapping. And here is a, an example, if you can see it, of um, we, we basically are working with a third-party company called ITN who um, 
are, we've developed an ontology for them to describe clinical trials, and they have a number of third-party applications that um, need to be driven from those ontologies. So there's a limb system, for example, that needs to um, needs to res- extract information from the ontology just describing sort of the, the various types of treatments that a patient can be given during a trial. And obviously the, the pre-existing LIMS application knows nothing about ontologies and is configured via XML. So um, configuring applications via XML is fairly standard in the, in, in the industry. So um, we've, in, in a number of cases, we've built um, mapping tools using Swirl to actually generate XML from OWL documents. So we have a built-in library that actually support, understands XML and allows you to write swirl rules and map um, information from an ontology into an XML document and then save that document out as a file or send it over a socket or whatever. Um, I won't go into the details, obviously, here. Um, it's documented in the wiki, but basically you can – it's, it's a, effectively a tree mapping problem. You're mapping from an owl ontology, which you can think of as a tree or a set of trees, and an XML ontology, which, again, you can think of a, as an analogous set of trees. So, again, it's a mapping problem. Um, so you can pull information from an ontology and put it into XML and also um, vice versa. So next slide, please, number 13. So the vice versa is you can also do querying. And I won't go into the details of this query, but effectively you can um, point um, you can point the query language at, uh, at, at an XML document, be it, be it on the web or on a file, and actually um, – what, what, what the tool will do is construct uh, an OWL representation of that XML document using a, a model of that XML document, and then you can actually use Squirrel to query that document. So you can actually query XML ontologies on the fly and uh, integrate information from, from those ontologies with the um, concepts we have in the normal OWL ontology, which is uh, something that we've, we've, we've done uh, quite a bit also. So that's the XML integration angle. So uh, slide 14. Um, obviously, most data that we're, we deal with and that many people deal with are in um, relational databases. So, um, for example, with the ITN that we're working with, they, a lot of their um, patient data is, is going to be in relational databases. And we, we envision, obviously, for the, the, the future that relational databases are still going to be around for many, many decades. So we would like to be able to um, deal with relational data in our um, ontologies but still leverage the power of ontologies by describing the content of the database but still, this, the storage is um, is typically going to be offline. So there, there are two approaches that, to that. There's the, the static approach and the dynamic approach. So obviously, if you have a, a third-party database, one option is to uh, describe it in some way in OWL and then import the entire contents into an OWL um, ontology, which is an approach that will work for very small data sets. But obviously, it doesn't scale. And um, then you have two sources of information, so there's a synchronization problem. So um, we, we deal with both the static and the... Um, Dynamic using a tool called Data Master. So, uh, next slide, please. So, Data Master uh, supports the um, the. Oh, I think the slide is missing. Sorry, number fifteen out there. Sorry. Um, so, Data Master is a plugin that's also available with Protege L that supports the uh, the static um, uh, importation of, of of information into L from a database. So, you can point this tool to any uh, ODBC compliant database, and um, it will actually import the contents uh, and the structure of your of your database into a LAN ontology, which we which we found quite useful for, for a lot of uh, situations. Databases, relational database uh, technology has been around for decades and provides a very scalable solution to um, dealing with lots of data, whereas most ontology tools uh, do not. So, for example, in Protege L, things usually get a little bit hard to deal with when you have more than, say, one or 200,000 individuals at the moment. That's improving, but still, it's nothing like the, the scalability that databases offer. But in, in any case, Data Master provides you with the ability to, to do that static importation. So next slide, please. Number 16. So, um, so a 
at the moment, we're developing a tool called what we're calling Dynamic Data Master that supports the dynamic querying of, of, of data from a database. So instead of actually importing the entire content of the data to be able to deal with it in rules and queries, we um, we describe a mapping process, which I won't go into detail here, but um, there's some papers you can I, I can link to that will basically um, describe how it works. But effectively, you you talk about you, you describe certain owl things in your ontology like classes and properties, and you say using a mapping ontology that these are mapped to um, to um, tables and, and rows and columns and so on in, in a database. So when you make a uh, when you write a rule or a query. The, uh, the engine, uh, I think, which is on the next slide, number 17, um, is effectively a mapping layer which um, intercepts the um, intercepts the uh, rules and queries and tries to find the, the entities inside in, in the rule or query that um, are actually mapped from the knowledge base. Sorry, from the database. So, um, from the point of view of the rule engine, it doesn't see any difference. But basically, when you're when you're parsing the rule and when you're trying, trying to run the rule, you try to find the map concepts in, in that rule and you pull the relevant information from the database by auto-generating SQL queries. So you don't rewrite the entire query in SQL. You basically find the entities within the query or the rule that are mapped and you pull them in as appropriate. And there are many optimizations you can employ there in terms of, for example, if you have a built-in, you can look at the built-in and see if it, if it, um, it, it you can use its information to optimize something. A simple example would be if you have a query that asks about all patients over 17 in a database, one approach, of course, would be to bring in every patient and then ask the rule engine to find all the patients that are over 17, but that's, of course, very wasteful. It would be best if you could offload the information to um, to the rule engine, or sorry, to the, to the database engine uh, as much as possible. So we have some optimizations that effectively look at the built-ins in the uh, rule and tries to trans rewrite some of those as extra SQL clauses so that the the RDB, the relational database um, system actually does the um, optimization for you. So we try to minimize the amount of information that, that we bring in. But the important point is that we we um, we can scale much more readily here um, in the sense that um, we're not bringing the entire contents of the database into into um, the um, the rule engine or the on, on the ontology tool. We're bringing in the the, uh, the appropriate amount. Uh, uh, Martin, slide, four, four minutes. Yeah, four minutes. Okay, thank you. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, lastly, lastly, I'll just go over very briefly, and um, I think Mike Dean's going to have a much longer talk on this in, in a few weeks, but basically we've also, um, and it's a very obvious conclusion, discovered that um, that uh, rules, uh, Swirl in particular, are very, is very good for uh, ontology integration in the sense that if you have two ontologies or two or more ontologies that talk about uh, similar concepts but perhaps not quite the same concepts, um, you typically have an integration problem uh, in the sense that you want to merge those ontologies and, and perhaps come up with a third ontology that, um, that describes the terms in some sort of integrated way. And we've discovered that Swirl is actually quite useful for doing that because it's, if, if you think of rules, you can think of them as complicated uh, tree traversal expressions. And usually merging or, or, or sort of integrating two ontologies involves picking concepts from one tree in the first ontology and, and sort of picking the associated concepts from the other sort of nodes in the other ontology and integrating them in some way. So Swirl actually provides a very powerful mechanism for doing that, and we've been using that quite a lot. And, and the tool that Mike Dean has developed called Snoggle, Snoggle, which is basically an ontology merging or management tool, um, really, really uses Swirl internally to... Um, to um, to do these mappings, and we've, we found that it's very good, a very good approach for for for, um, for merging ontologies um, and for managing more 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 than one ontology, so that we sort of have a coherent view of the the entire uh, of the entire process. Okay, on last slide number nineteen. 
Oh, sorry, so, uh, second last slide, number 19. So here's a, an example schematic of uh, a very simple application that we've built um, that effectively is a, a web application that um, a user enters some information um, about a patient. Um, that information is translated by an existing front end to XML. So we use uh, Swirl and the XML translation to actually translate that um, XML into an ontology format. And then we um, have an application that will query that uh, information at the ontology level, um, and, um, and then we have a set of rules that uh, use that information to reach conclusions about patients. So this is a, a HIV uh, ontology and a treatment ontology, and the details don't matter so much, but effectively the rules um, are written in terms of the um, of the, the HIV ontology, and obviously the XML that comes in is purely based in terms of the, uh, the GUI front end. So we use Swirl to translate that XML into uh, a form that we can deal with in OWL effectively. Then we run some rules on that information, and we generate results. And those results are, are mapped back to the application using, again, using Swirl to do the mapping back to XML. And at the, at the bottom end, then, uh, the actual patient data are stored in a relational database. So again, we use the, um, we use Dynamic Data Master to, um, to effectively, um, do the mapping from the relational database to OWL. And the, the application and the rules within the application itself don't know anything about this mapping process going on, or they don't know anything about the XML coming in. They just see ontology or OWL level entities and the rules that have hidden the mapping process from them. And Data Master, again, has also hidden the mapping process from them. So you can write rules at a high level without worrying about the low-level mapping details. So last, last slide. So, uh, so just to summarize, we, we've basically used for all quite a bit in a number of applications. We've developed quite a few tools. And um, we found, in particular, that Swirl is really good for dealing with the, the different formats of information or different types of information that you can have in, in, in when you're building a typical application. Um, pretty much all of the software I've talked about today is downloadable um, via, as part of Protege, which is open source and free. Um, Data Master and Swirl tab have been available since uh, Protege 331. Uh, the XML querying has been available in the last few months. The dynamic relational querying that I've talked about is in prototype form at the moment. I'm hoping to be able to release that maybe in, in about two to three months. And um, everything I've talked about here today is documented at a sort of a high level and also at a very low level um, in, in the wiki on, on, on um, Peter's Sim3 site um, under the Swirl tab, and the, the link is here. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Martin. Thank you. Um, Okay, uh, 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 Peter, if you can keep me honest and uh, uh, hold me to 20 minutes. Yes. Um, I'll monitor myself, too, but uh, the speaker and the chair may inter have some interference. Um, right. Uh, maybe I I'll take the opportunity to introduce Leo, who actually shouldn't need any introduction. Uh, uh, Dr. Oberst is a principal... AI scientist in the Information Discovery and Understanding Department at MITRE uh, Command and Control Center, where he leads the Information Semantics Group. Uh, he's been involved in uh, many projects uh, relating to semantic web rules, uh, ontology interaction, context-based semantic interoperability, ontology-based knowledge management, conceptual search and information retrieval, uh, metadata and taxonomy, thesaurus construction for semantic support of natural language processing, and ontology-based modeling of complex decision-making. Uh, so among other things, uh, he is 
one of our co-conveners of this ontolog community. So without taking up uh, this more valuable time to share his insights, uh, let's go over to his slides. He will be giving this presentation on uh, semantic web ontologies and rules with efficient runtime reasoning using logic programming. So, Leo. Okay, thanks, Peter. Uh, yes, uh, folks, uh, if you have the, the slides in front of you, uh, this is actually based on a paper we gave uh, uh, at the uh, Vorte workshop uh, uh, back in October uh, with a, a few modifications. Uh, it's, it's based on our research for uh, you know, roughly the last three years, uh, 2004 through 2007. Uh, slide two. Uh, one of the things that uh, we want to talk about here and that we wanted to do in our research is to uh, demonstrate semantic web ontology, uh, rule, and efficient, uh, efficient automated reasoning environment. Uh, the, the, the usual case is uh, uh, when folks initially see rules, they may see them as uh, either uh, if and else case statements in programming languages. Uh, or perhaps uh, rules and expert systems, uh, if you're familiar with uh, um, AI and uh, some of the historical uh, rule systems, uh, knowledge-based systems. Um, rules separate, uh, can help you separate uh, uh, in a declarative fashion from executable code. And uh, obviously using, it, uh, using rules with ontologies, uh, you uh, extend your model uh, pre-semantic web uh, ontology languages uh, really included rules. Uh, it, it so happened that semantic web uh, stack languages uh, uh, didn't exactly have the uh, rules, uh, rule, rule languages that uh, uh, maybe you, you would like to have for ontologies. Uh, we also wanted to demonstrate a dynamic service-oriented architecture, uh, especially using rules for allowing for adaptive change in uh, standard operating procedures. So our focus is, of course, uh, uh, in, in this uh, application is on situational awareness, course of action. Um, the notions in a, let's say, a, um, uh, if you're in a, a theater of operations uh, and uh, you're concerned with uh, providing uh, defense uh, over some uh, area. Uh, so the rules have to be adjusted in real time um, to respond to events as they occur. We also wanted optimization. Um, uh, modern uh, logic programming environments uh, are basically very uh, efficient in uh, reasoning, um, and we wanted to wed the logic programming reasoning with uh, semantic web technology. Uh, next slide, three. Uh, some initial use case uh, key concepts. Uh, you see kind of like a map uh, there with uh, terrain and uh, uh, friendly ground-moving targets, uh, hostile ground-moving targets, intelligent summaries, and what we call ROIs, which is a region of interest, uh, surrounding a, uh, a theater object. In other words, it's kind of like a safety zone or a potential hazard zone uh, surrounding that object. 
Uh, obviously, if it's a moving object uh, and moving at a high speed, then uh, that uh, region of interest will not be uh, simply a uh, circle, uh, but a three-dimensional object uh, surrounding that moving object. Uh, we idealized it here. Um, and uh, we have uh, basically theater objects. Uh, uh, the focus of our application was on convoy movement. Um, so if you go to slide four, you'll see uh, the, uh, the scenario and the ontology we developed to support that scenario. So basically, uh, we have an ontology. Uh, it's a relatively simple ontology of theater objects uh, uh, with observation artifacts uh, and different kinds of uh, observation artifacts uh, corresponding to uh, the kinds of uh, information you may get uh, in a theater of operation. So uh, everything from uh, sensor-based, ground-moving target indicators, uh, intelligent summaries, may be, which may be uh, partially uh, added to by human beings in the field, and uh, VMTI, which is a visual-moving target indicators, uh, a separate kind of class but uh, with visualization. And military units, uh, the, the, as I mentioned, such as a convoy and its route, and uh, notions of uh, alternative routes, too. Uh, dynamic regions of interest, in other words, those areas which could be considered safety areas surrounding an object or uh, areas which uh, if, you, if a, you intersect with, you have to make a decision as to how it affects you. Uh, so, if we look at slide five, applications of rules, our focus was in basically supporting intelligent processing of real-time events, a uh, number of information events, in other words, uh, those ground-moving target indicators and intelligent summaries, uh, they could be coming in at uh, any, any given time, and what we want to do is synthesize the information from multiple sources. Uh, apply uh, data integrity constraints, uh, the rules uh, can provide that. And uh, one of the things that we want to do in our future is mediate between conflicting sources. Uh, so more of uh, information correlation and fusion. Uh, and then derive new knowledge based on the source type and reliability, the provenance, uh, information, and accuracy. Uh, the this conceptualization of the battle space uh, was focused on really enhancing situational awareness. Uh, information comes in, we transfer the attribute values from that observation to the actual models of the feeder objects, uh, and then determine the safety zones or threat areas, these ROIs, and detect and report threats to friendly forces. Uh, so the application of the rule here is basically to assist decision makers in, in the simple case of convoy movement, uh, the convoy commander, um, in applying these rules of engagement uh, as situations develop. Uh, the convoy is moving on a pretty predetermined path to uh, uh, carry some material or equipment to a certain uh, location, uh, and things occur uh, during the course of that, which uh, is the situation, and uh, the commander has to be aware of changes. Uh, next slide is slide six. 
Uh, very, uh, here are some sample rules. Uh, you know, we basically wanted to have, be able to, uh, if you will, move in and out of different policy sets. In other words, different rules of engagement depending upon um, conditions in the world. So our one one kind of idealized set of rules here was uh, uh, one for high visibility. In other words, uh, during the daytime when it's clear, for example, and rules for low visibility. Uh, let's say nighttime or sandstorm or some other kind of uh, storm comes up that obscures uh, perception and vision. Uh, typically, uh, the uh, the low visibility rules have to be much more conservative uh, in, to, in their recommendations simply because uh, you have less information to be guided by. So uh, a case, uh, what's displayed here is kind of a uh, Google map, uh, uh, for example, uh, of Iraq, uh, portion of Iraq, where the convoy is moving along the green line uh, and there's uh, hostile or unknown objects coming into uh, play here. So uh, the green circle is the, the region of interest around the, um, uh, the convoy, and uh, this yellow circle is some unknown uh, theater object that has appeared. So the rules that we would use would be something like if an unknown mover is within the convoy safety zone, in other words, when these intersect, these circles, then alert the commander that there is a nearby unknown uh, mover. And uh, it, uh, then also maybe recommend, this is an effect of rule chaining, uh, that the convoy deploy a UAV, for example, to, uh, uh, to get a better look at this unknown object to determine whether, in fact, it's hostile. Uh, next slide is seven. Uh, one of the issues here uh, in uh, our rule development was we wanted to be able to modify things very quickly and extend it to uh, potentially other dimensions. Uh, in this case, we wanted to extend it to uh, space, uh, air and space, and uh, what we found was that it was very easy to extend the ontology and the rules that we had because we were basically focusing on uh, information sources, uh, what to do with them, uh, theater objects uh, along some dimension, uh, and uh, you know particular types of rules uh, uh, mainly focused on uh, alerting uh, when certain events occur or certain uh, objects appear uh, in your uh, potential uh, potentially affected area, uh, and then have recommendations uh, as to what you should do. Uh, the recommendation simply because the uh, uh, the decision has to remain uh, uh, among uh, the human uh, commander. Uh, next slide is uh, just showing you that simple extension uh, to space and in this case also maritime uh, and leverage the existing situational awareness framework we had. Um, I want to shift now into slide nine, which is the logic programming environment. We basically wanted to uh, uh, use our ontologies and RDF instances and swirl rules expressing the situational awareness uh, alerts and recommendations. Uh, and we wanted to do this uh, with a, an efficient reasoning system at runtime. So 
We developed what we call a FOIA, Semantic Web, Rule, Web Ontologies and Rules for Interoperability with Sufficient Reasoning. It's a mouthful. Uh, where we reason over ontologies and rules and answer queries uh, in a prologue uh, that's been uh, enhanced to include the, the semantics of OWL and, and, of course, its extension, Swirl. Um, we had to design general prologue predicates to implement the semantics of OWL. Um, it, it was a very challenging uh, uh, research uh, effort, really, because uh, wedding uh, description logics in particular, such as OWL, to uh, logic programming uh, is not, uh, is not uh, just a, a very simple and straightforward uh, thing to do, simply because the semantics uh, are quite distinct. Uh, uh, negation is handled differently. Prolog has uh, uh, finite failure negation, meaning it's not the case. If you look in your knowledge base and you can't find something uh, that uh, makes that statement hold, you can de then declare that it's not the case that that uh, exists. Uh, but uh, uh, semantic web uh, technology, including OWL, uh, allows for uh, logical negation, uh, in, in particular in terms of complementation. Uh, and there's other things such as disjointness and complementary classes, the Boolean classes of OWL, uh, that pose some issues with uh, uh, implementation uh, and interpretation in a logic programming environment and uh, the uh, equivalence relations that you can define within OWL to, to uh, demonstrate that two classes are equivalent or two properties or uh, two uh, instances. So our initial approach, uh, uh, the performance of this system was pretty slow. We used XSLT to do the translation of OWL and uh, SWIRL rules uh, into uh, Prolog, and then we defined uh, ultimately an interpreter compiler in Prolog that amalgamated the semantics as much as possible between uh, the description logic side and the logic programming side. Uh, what we had to do to get efficiency is to do knowledge compilation techniques. So uh, to uh, extensionalize as much as we could, that simply means um, uh, finding all solutions to rules kind of offline and tabling or, uh, you know, in a sense, putting, putting those uh, bindings into a table so that at runtime, uh, the, the rule execution uh, is more like a table lookup, much more efficient. You can't do that completely, but you can do it partially. Uh, and then we also, uh, in our search, uh, in our proof search, uh, we try to avoid uh, reanalysis uh, even more so than Prolog provides, uh, so that uh, you you could trim uh, branches and uh, and ensure that you would never uh, go to the same place twice. Uh, and then we also uh, did code minimization, meaning uh, when we did uh, when we it kind of like pragma, uh, pragmatic constraint uh, that you pass the compiler um, that says uh, you know we're not going to be using this kind of construct in OWL uh, or these rules. Therefore, we don't have to include the code uh, at the runtime uh, engine for, for using that. Um, in the next slide, 10, I, I, I'm, uh, I want to make sure that I don't run out of time. 
is basically their knowledge-based design. So you see the developer. Initially, uh, we had rule ML and swirl rules, but then we, uh, the second year, we just converted to swirl with our ontologies and RDF instances, uh, translated X, using XSLT into prologues. Uh, we call the essentially it's uh, intentional prologue, meaning it's the fully expressed rules. Uh, but we extensionalize as much as possible, meaning that we try to find solutions to the rules and um, and store those uh, to minimize uh, query and update uh, at runtime. Uh, and so the user uh, ultimately interacts with uh, the compiled, extensionalized uh, prologue engine that has uh, both the description logics and the description logic semantics and the logic programming semantics um, uh, amalgamated. Um, and you can also uh, add new instances to the knowledge base at runtime. Um, you can't n add new classes or properties uh, dynamically uh, because of the uh, dependencies uh, and the consistency checking you'd have to uh, employ uh, essentially integrity rules um, to find out the possible effects of adding something new, uh, especially when it's a class or a property or a rule. Uh, it's easy enough to do instances at runtime because the consistency checking is uh, minimal. Uh, next slide is the overall architecture. Uh, we use an enterprise service bus, one, uh, one that's available on the web, uh, open source, called Mule. And we attach things to it. So we ultimately attached multiple uh, Sawyer instances, if you will, uh, which is uh, uh, basically two or more reasoners, uh, perhaps with the same ontologies, uh, perhaps with uh, the same ontology but different rule sets, or uh, they could be, in fact, distinct ontologies and rule sets, uh, along with adapters. Uh, we use Google Earth as our visualization and uh, our situational awareness services, if you will, and event mediation. Those were, uh, for the prototype, they were kind of, uh, uh, we injected real world, uh, simulated real world events. And, uh, and, and, and similarly, we provided uh, simulated intelligence ground moving target indicators. But the overall architecture we figure um, it's pretty extensible. Uh, it, it uses XML uh, essentially to uh, communicate between the individual modules, uh, the, the reasoner and the bus, uh, Google Earth and the bus, uh, etc. And uh, you can uh, arbitrarily add new applications or ontologies uh, with uh, reasoners to this architecture. Uh, next slide is conclusions. I'm just about done. Um, uh, we found that uh, OWL was uh, expressive enough for most of our requirements. Uh, with, uh, it, when it extended with Swirl, uh, it's, it's uh, much better uh, because we do want that rule-like uh, capability. Uh, we use this for rapid enterprise integration, uh, basically different knowledge sources, different data sources. Uh, we, can do, we can really deliver new capabilities in hours instead of weeks or months. Uh, we used these rules in particular in aggregation of events. 
in this simulated battle space. Uh, we also combined uh, semantic web technologies and logic programming. Uh, it's, uh, it's very challenging, and I, I will point folks to our, our upcoming paper in uh, theory and uh, practice of logic programming journal uh, that gives a quite extensive uh, description of uh, the challenges and, and our solutions. Uh, we, we have been engaged in the W3C RIF uh, until last year, so I'm glad that uh, uh, Chris and Joseph could provide uh, more up-to-date uh, status for everyone, uh, simply because we haven't been able to be involved in the past year. Um, and the final slide, then, is our future work, some of which uh, we're already uh, performing or have performed. Um, We'd like to have meta rules uh, uh, over the architecture that would uh, uh, enable uh, selection and reasoning over which rule sets to use at which times. And uh, uh, we, we completed Swoyer as much as we could. Uh, we also looked at answer set programming, and uh, we had a short, very short uh, uh, couple of months uh, uh, if you will, investigation of answer set programming, which is an alternative logic programming paradigm uh, that's emerged in recent years, probably since about 2004, in particular uh, for uh, merging semantic web technologies with logic programming. And we actually found um, in our experiment that uh, it was much more uh, efficient. We could we could do things. We could we could modify. Uh, things very quickly. We could uh, create things very quickly, mu much more so than compared to uh, the work that we had to do in the prologue side. Uh, and it seemed to uh, enable a cleaner uh, amalgamation, if you will, of the semantics of, of description logics and logic programming. Uh, we did build uh, an extension to store instances in a database and then have a direct uh, prologue to the to, uh, relational database connection using our uh, uh, rule system. And we've uh, subsequently extended to new domains. Uh, and then uh, just the final slide are some references. And I thank you for your time. Thank you very much, uh, Leo. Uh, great talk and good timing. So uh, we... Uh, moving into the Q&A session, and this is time for people to get queued up. Uh, so on the on on the uh, chat screen, uh, this is the hand button. If you're on the shared screen, I'm pointing to the hand button now. Uh, if you want to get queued up, please. Uh, press a you know, the, the hand button now. I only see one hand, and that's Pat Cassidy's so far. Uh, also, if you're just on the phone, uh, please press one one now uh, to get ready for uh, Q and A. Uh, again, I see one hand uh, up uh, on on the uh, on the phone system uh, with someone from the 908 uh, area code. Uh, so uh, let's, let's, let's ask Leo, do you, do you want to take the uh, Pat's question first or the 908 person first? Uh, they're the same, Peter. 
Oh, okay. Oh, All right. Yes. <laughs> okay, make it simple. All right, then. <laughs> Go ahead, Pat. Uh, a follow-up on, on one of the questions I did in a chat session about uh, Owl Full. And the work I've been doing to trying to develop an ontology for supporting language understanding, uh, I think it's pretty hard to do that without um, having relations on types as well as relations on instances. And uh, I'm just wondering what the prospect is for extending any of this to be able to handle that sort of thing. Anyone? Who, who would you like to uh, answer this first? Um, well, I, I, I guess uh, wh wh whoever, I mean, Joss seemed to have answered the question on Swirl, although the pres presentation on Swirl was given by Martin, so <laughs> either one. Well, uh, well, um, does, does, does either Joss or Martin have any uh, indication that uh, Owlful will be supported by any of the work they're doing in the near future? Let's start with yours and, and then Martin. Okay. Um, okay. Um, well, when considering our full, uh, in, uh, when looking at RIF RDF uh, combination, there, uh, our full is completely supported, well, from the specification side. Of course, we will need to see whether anyone will implement uh, any useful subset of it, because as we know, uh, Alfu is uh, terribly hard to deal with unless you you use a very uh, restricted subset. Um, but then the question is also whether you do need uh, all of Alfu or whether you could leave uh, could live sorry with uh, such a subset. And then uh, when looking at the, the more the Al uh, DL semantics world. Uh, well, what is now going on in the OWL, uh, uh, in the OWL 2 uh, working group is that they, uh, in the OWL 2 DL, say, they want to have this uh, possibility to use uh, class identifiers as instances as well, um, but they are still uh, separated uh, in the semantic world. So, uh, so the identifier is interpreted based on the context also called punning. So when you use the same identifier as an instance, it is actually something else than when you use it uh, as a class. Hmm. Um, but maybe maybe this would also be sufficient for your uh, use case. I don't know. Okay. okay thank you. Um, d d Martin, uh, d do you, did you want to comment from anyone else, Pat? Uh, yeah, I wanted to comment brief, briefly on that. So um, you can actually use Alful in, in the Swirl tab in the sense that there's a T-Box built-in library that allows you to actually directly refer to all, all classes and instances, or all classes and properties and so on. Um, however, I should note that the, um, the semantics of such operators aren't pretty clear in the sense that you shouldn't make deductions using them. Basically, you're allowed to, um, you're allowed to directly refer to, um, to classes, for example, in built-ins and, and basically do all full reasoning. But um, they really should only be used for querying because um, the, the semantics are not clear. Um, yeah. well, I'll give you an example of the sort of thing I'm running into. Um, <coughs> uh, we, we want situations where um, uh, the existence of one type, uh, you know, the, the, the um, uh, for all ex exists type relationship. Uh, you can do that now on instances. Uh, with some values from, but um, if, if you if you don't want to force um, the reasoner to to choke 
when the uh, instance does not exist, you might want to make a relationship uh, on between two two types. You might say a, a person a person always has a mother, but you don't want to the the instance the um, reasoner to to halt or complain or refuse to accept data just because the mother isn't there. Uh, that, uh, at some point, you'd want another reasoner, uh, some some reasoner that that includes the alpha but goes, extends beyond it, uh, to be able to interpret the, um, that type of information and and do with it what it what it needs to do in in, in whatever the context happens to be. But uh, just at at the the level where the reasoning is being implemented uh, in in owl. Uh, it would be nice to be able to have such um, relationships between types uh, so that they can be interpreted by reasoners. Uh, Pat, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to maybe try to clarify uh, from what I heard. You, it sounds like you may have a rule that you're concerned with, uh, um, let's say by definition, um, a mother has to have a child. Well, a child has to have a mother, okay. Or, well, or I'll, I'll, actually, both, both uh, are true. Actually, both both of those are true. Right? Okay. <laughs> yes, and and you could have, in fact, a rule um, like that. So it would be uh, an existential, uh, uh, existentially quantified uh, rule. So there is some child that you know is uh, uh, that the mother is the mother of. Right, and, and you, um, you can do that in the existing L with the uh, you know on property a restriction on property some values from that 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 has that effect. But that's yes, an and and the same thing there. Um, uh, one of the things we encountered uh, when we were developing our school rules is that in many cases uh, you you will have an existential uh, requirement, um, and what you'd like to do is maybe satisfy it on the fly. That's another In other idea. words, uh, right. that typically that's done uh, with a, a, a let's say scholomization, meaning that you have some sort of uh, you know unique arbitrary uh, constant that stands in for the uh, existentially quantified uh, argument. Right. But it's not the same thing as saying that there is uh, a specific uh, child uh, uh, or you know uh, person who is the mother of that child. Right, right. I, I know. I had. There, well, just just let me interrupt a second to go back. Uh, I, what I had in mind was actually a, a, a series of at least um, at least three different ways of handling existential uh, for all existing qualification. One is is uh, that if if you if if the instance that is implied does not exist, you simply refuse to accept the data, or at least give give the, uh, the data enter an opportunity to to revise the information. The second is, as you say, you can have actually create an instance. Uh, in, in, uh, and, and the third possibility is you can you can take a, a statement of that kind and simply, uh, if the thing doesn't exist, just provide a warning message but do nothing about it. And in every one of those cases, uh, the, those implementations would uh, be active only at data entry time. That for efficiency purposes, at data query time, the existentials are never executed. Uh, this is sort of what, what ontology works does, but they only have two two possibilities. They have uh, do nothing or, or or don't accept the data. And I'm looking at, at the third case, which is the one you mentioned, uh, actually creating an instance. But uh, if you want to create your database first in OWL 
and then have that translated into uh, a more expressive logic. There has to be some way to express it now. And um, using OutFold, you can do that uh, with, with, the, with the implications of the, of the type relations being uh, or, um, implementation specific. But if, you, but if you can't do that, that makes it harder to express certain things, you know. This is what I'm concerned about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe Joseph or, or Martin has a response now that uh, there's a little bit clarification. Um, well, yeah, the, the ability to uh, actually create instances on the fly in rules is something we found really pressing um, because you often, for example, when you're doing mapping, you're, you could be mapping one tree to another, and in a sense you're constructing another tree. And you can sort of do that using um, using some values from an owl, but it's very awkward. So um, we actually have a, a custom built-in, <laughs> because it's the only way we could get around it, for actually creating instances on the fly that you can then populate. I see you've done that. In, 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 in what program did you have done? Uh, well, the, well, basically, the Swirl tab has a, an implementation using Jess as the back end for, to execute uh-huh. Swirl rules. So we translate Swirl into Jess. And we also have our, our built-in libraries, arbitrarily built-in libraries. So we have a built-in library that basically has a create out, make all individual, we call it, I oh, think. Oh, really? well, that's neat. Okay. And it makes oh. it, a, and uh, this is a pressing. And I noticed from Mike Dean's talk that he hasn't, that he'll be giving soon, that he also identifies that as something that would be nice to actually have within the language. Because obviously built-ins allow you to do, we've done a lot of sort of fairly nasty things with built-ins in the sense that <laughs> they're outside the spec of the language, but we sort of needed them for our applications. But um, the ability to create on the fly is something that would be very nice to have in, in Swirl or, or any or any rule language on the web because the ability to create new things on the fly um, and to populate them and to move stuff around is actually pretty pretty important in a, certainly in a mapping or integration process. So, so is the Squirrel query actually available in Protege right now? I, I yeah, Squirrel has been there for, for about six or eight months. Well, well yeah. Squirrel has, but, but the, the Squirrel, the, the query? Oh, yeah, that, that's been available, too, for quite a while. The, the, the only thing that's not available that I talked about today is the dynamic mapping to databases. Ah, right, yes. That's, that, that's not available. Yeah, uh, that, that, that'd be really great, too. Okay, yeah. then I definitely will have to look at it again. Thank you. Sure. Okay, I see uh, that Ken has uh, raised his hand. Ken uh, Bukowski. Hi. Yes, um, I actually had this question that's in the uh, on the chat board. Um, uh, the uh, yeah, the issue was how how would one specify such a uh, such a profile? Uh, I can see that you have a number of standard profiles, and I can see. That it says you can do an extension and then you would specify the uh, entailment and models, but it's a little less clear to me how you know, how would you formally specify that um, what what those um, what your entailment is and what your what your model is. Uh, the link that you gave me just just gives me uh, more of a you know a description in English. So um, uh, yeah. could you? Uh, this is mostly for uh, Joss Brun. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this is Joss uh, Um So let me respond to this. So we don't have a language for specifying profiles. Um, well, specifically, uh, uh, semantic notions like model satisfiability, etc., are typically uh, specified using English uh, because, well. We don't really know uh, how else to specify them, or at least English is the most uh, convenient way to go. So, basically, uh, yeah, if you want to specify uh, another profile, you will uh, have to specify it in English. 
yeah, because, well, I actually also don't really see a way of how to formally specify such a thing because this would require a formal specification of uh, an entailment relation that could be imported by a reasoner and we simply don't know uh, how to do such a thing. So okay. what I would envision is that you specify um, a profile at a specific URI and at this document, at this location you will put a document which describes um, what the notions of model certifiability and endowment are in English. So, yeah, perhaps somebody, somebody who is more familiar with uh, common logic could could say whether it's actually necessary. It's not actually not possible to specify these notions using uh, just uh, first-order logic. Um, but yeah, thanks. This is that was most helpful. Well, I, I mean, typically it's done in a, in a meta language, right? Yeah, uh, meta language could itself be first order. Yeah, uh, you you could push it down, but I I don't know that. Uh, you know, I don't know that folks have. I know hybrid logic has pushed down some, uh, but I don't know about notions like uh, satisfiability and different. Uh, so, yeah, so maybe it's something to raise with, uh, you know, John Soa and uh, Pat Hayes. Okay. Uh, maybe I can add something. Uh, this is uh, Jost Brown again. So these semantic notions, these are, are model theoretic notions. So actually, a reasoner doesn't work with uh, this with these kinds of notions. So even if you would have a language to specify them and give them to a reasoner, the reasoner cannot do anything with it. People uh, invent algorithms and show that you can uh, use this algorithm to decide this particular uh, notion, such as entailment, that is defined in terms of a model theory. But a reasoner does not work with a model theory itself. So that's it for me. Right, right. Um, oh, okay, and I guess next in line was uh, the, the Ontario, the person on the phone. Is that correct? This is Adrian Walker, currently in Ontario. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, we can hear you now, Adrian. Go ahead. Okay, okay. Sorry for the delay. Uh, this is a question mainly for Leo, um, but um, I think the Stanford folks might be interested a little bit too. Um, the, the, there's a system we work on that's on the web for anybody to use and um, it takes the approach that um, you ought to have some sort of English on the front end and you ought to be able for efficiency to be able to compile, compile rules down to SQL and SQL can get very complicated and very opaque so nobody could really tell by looking at the SQL what it's computing but then you ought to be able to get back, because you originally wrote the rules in something approaching English, you ought to be able to get back English explanations, even though the heavy lifting, so to speak, was done in SQL. Um, so there's, there's a slew of techniques there that, that seem to intersect a little bit um, with, with what Leo was talking about, but um, which seem to go against the idea of saving extensions and then just asking, answering queries from extensions, because if you do that, um, you basically uh, can't get any kind of explanation of what the inferences were unless you go back to somehow retrieve the inferences that made the extensions in the first place. So just 
a, a general idea that um, if you can approach things in English, both for authoring the rules and then uh, and and for running the rules, so that you can get English explanations back, and then uh, note that um, prologue-like inference is good up to a certain point, but doesn't really scale. But note the uh, sort of uh, decades of work that has gone into making SQL scale. You can sort of tie these three things together and and hopefully get some value. And I'd be interested in Leo's reaction. I know it's, it's kind of a, throwing a, a lot into one question. Leo's reaction, whether any of that could be useful for him, but, but particularly Leo, because if I understand correctly, your data are changing fast. Your convoy is, is running around and, and your unknown object is running around. Um, so uh, yes, I, I, so, so you, 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 there's about three aspects, uh, I think, to your questions here. Um, uh, one of which is, uh, you know, there's a uh, there's a technical thread uh, that the origins are probably late '80s uh, called deductive databases, um, where uh, you have a rule component like Prolog on top, a reasoning component, and then a relational database underneath. Um, uh, yeah, a modern incarnation of that is probably something like Ontology Works, which uh, originally used XSB Prolog uh, and then uh, in an underlying relational store. Um, uh, so that's that's one aspect, and and uh, there, there was a lot of efficiencies. I mean, you get set at a time operators uh, in your relational uh, uh, constructs, and then you also have rules and uh, you know uh, reasoning uh, in the the Prolog like. Uh, uh, top, if you will. Uh, the English-like questions, uh, yeah, in a, in a, in a prior uh, lifetime, um, I also uh, uh, built uh, natural language uh, query interfaces to relational databases. So uh, ultimately what we had to do uh, was to uh, map from, uh, if you will, controlled English a uh, set of queries uh, and que possible constructs uh, expressible in English to uh, the actual data that lived in, uh, you know, relational databases, in which case um, there's both parsing uh, and uh, semantic interpretation and then uh, di even discourse interpretation and then domain interpretation in terms of the relational database that has uh, apparently the domain information. And you would like to have all that, and I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I followed uh, some of your work uh, in the past, Adrian, and I know that you have components of that. Um, I don't know, you know, how complete or, you know, how extensive that is because I haven't really had a chance to use it. But, uh, yeah, with extensionalization, there, there's, uh, if you will, this is kind of a third uh, but related uh, topic is that, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially what you want to keep, if you can, is uh, the rules uh, and the uh, potential uh, training of rules, uh, if needed for explanation purposes, but, uh, but for reasoning purposes, you, you would like to have uh, the, uh, the, the results as quickly as possible, uh, knowing that it may... You may have a trace that you'd like to have after the fact, uh, but you don't really have to necessarily recompute that. Uh, and then there's been work in, you know, uh, nobody does complete extensionalization because you can't, and 
if you add uh, dynamicity to this, uh, you can't do that because you, you, if you have, if you want to add new instances or new constructs at, at runtime, then you have to have integrity constraints that uh, check to make sure that what you're trying to do is possible. And then, you know, there may be a second compilation uh, if you are going to do that based upon this new addition and its effects. So there's a lot of uh, tricky issues uh, involved in this. And, I, you know, I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, say anything more, but uh, it's, it's never uh, entirely one thing that you end up doing. Uh, even for optimization, you have to put in a number of optimizations, and none of none of which are, um, you know, totally uh, complete or, uh, or or satisfying. So, if I if I can just come back on that, um, it, it seems that there's sort of one area where you can have your cake and eat it, which is if you uh, if your data is rapidly changing, you're throwing that into a SQL database. If you can compile out SQL that's 10 pages long and do that in a few seconds um, and uh, then get your answers back with the efficiency of SQL back into some sort of English front end, then you can have your cake and eat it in the sense that you're dealing with dynamic data, you're dealing with it fast, your reasoning is still there, you haven't, it hasn't been extensionalized out, and you can also get the explanations if you need them. So, you know, that's, that's what we've been attempting in our system, and I hope you may have time to try it and, and see how far we've gotten with, with that. Yes, and I think that um, uh, Martin actually commented on that, too, um, uh, that they, they rely upon uh, the database uh, engine to do a lot of the optimizations rather than really reinventing. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's, that's very useful to do. I mean, uh, you think of joins, and really, uh, in, in Prolog, it's just having like two predicates with the same variables, or, or at least one variable in common. And uh, you know, there's in the database world, uh, there's been a lot of uh, time spent on optimizing joins. Yeah, and, and there's another aspect to that, which is that the rule stuff is sort of more human readable than a very complex SQL join. So if you can generate very complex SQL joins from the rule stuff, you, you, you kind of get some serendipity there as well because you can see what the rules are supposed to be doing. What the SQL is supposed to be doing might be totally opaque to a person, but you've still got the rules. You can still get an explanation back. Yeah, and I would say that the, the, the SQL is typically opaque to end users. So. Sure, sure. And so, you know, the ability to get explanations back all the way to English for end users is, is something we've been working on, and um, that, that, that seems to um, maybe intersect a little bit with what Leo is doing and, and, and also with, with the Stanford folks. Okay. Any other comments by our speakers? Just one point there. The, the, um, the, there is a lot of inference that has to go on as well um, when you're making queries, at, say, at the knowledge level. So, for example, we, we don't uh, translate the entire swirl query into SQL um, because we sort of can't because all sort of things going on in terms of a subsumption and equivalent classes and, and so on. So we can only sort of use SQL to pull in pieces of, of the information, but it's not like we generate 10-page SQL queries. Actually, we generate a, a sort of four or five targeted SQL queries, which certainly don't give us the performance that a big 
BigQuery would do. But um, the problem is with with Owl is that a lot of uh, a lot of inference has to go on on the fly as you're making a query. It's not like you have a, a static closed uh, system. When you make a query about uh, all instances of a class, you have to look at its subclasses and equivalent classes and, and lots of other things as well, and also the OWL class descriptions. So um, with OWL, it's actually quite difficult to do, well, actually, uh, unless you're happy not to get the entailments, entailments that, you, that you would like to get that the ontology sort of specifies. So it's, it's not a simple rewriting into SQL problem, unfortunately, I think, for in many cases, unless you make some compromises. Well, the, the two things there, I mean, it, it's difficult, but the question is, is it impossible? And, uh, and I guess third, another question is, uh, you know, is it worth doing? Uh, in other words, as you try to push more and more down into SQL, do you still get the efficiency uh, payoff that you expect? I mean, when, when you're answering a, um, a query um, from, from an OWL ontology, for example, you, you effectively have to do a full OWL reasoner to answer that query. So I don't think you could... While in principle it could be possible to do an owl reasoner in SQL, I don't think that would be practical. Um, so people do it for RDFS, which just has some simple constructs like subclass and so on. But once, mm-hmm. and I think it's possible perhaps to do it for RDF. Um, or for example, I think Oracle have extended their database engine to do sort of transitive closure. Um, in, in that case, when you're doing um, those sort of queries on their triple store, but um, it's um, once you start thinking about the more complicated owl constructs or even simple owl constructs. I don't think you can practically translate, translate those to SQL or anything like it, uh, and do the, uh, the to do the uh, do full reasoning on, on the on the on the ontology. Yeah, it's a, it's certainly compatible with what we do. I mean, we do as much we push as much as we can down into SQL, and we do the rest uh, in, in logic programming. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Um, so then it's just a question of, of pushing as much as getting getting as much efficiency as possible out of out of the SQL part of it. Yeah. yeah, because people have been working on that stuff for 30 or 40 years, and it's really quick. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's yeah. the approach we adopt, to try to do as much as we can um, uh, in, 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 in the relational database. But um, there's a limit to what you can do, unfortunately, to, to a large degree. But, but then the other aspect is if you have English at the front end, um, then that can, even though you put the heavy lifting onto SQL, you can get English explanations back to the end user level. Um, so, you know, what's gone on inside is incredibly complicated and no end user and few programmers would really want to look at it. But you can get answer, you can get explanations back at the, at the sort of the end user, business person, scientist, scientist kind of level. So, yeah. so there's, there's lots of good stuff to be done there. That, that's true. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, um, I, I guess that's a good time to pass it back to Leo to wrap up. Uh, we're about running out of time. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, folks. So I know there, there, there are some questions in the chat session um, uh, where folks hadn't raised their hands. Um, what I'd like is, uh, you know, look over the chat and uh, especially our speakers, if you do have a response, I know some had, have responded already. Uh, you may be able to answer them for our uh, audience uh, or provide pointers. Uh, in any case, that chat session will be uh, available and uh, accessible uh, for the future. So that, uh, some links are embedded in it um, to things that uh, uh, re- reflect the questions and answers. And so it's a very useful uh, resource. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I'd suggest if, uh, 
if we haven't answered your questions and they're still pressing, uh, one, uh, you know, one uh, area that you can respond is to the actual Ontolog forum and uh, address it to the community if you have a question uh, with respect to uh, the uh, briefings today. Uh, the, the, the community is extremely large, and uh, you may get uh, uh, responses from others uh, that may p provide you with more information. Um, okay, I guess uh, we're about ready to wrap up. Uh, we've actually exceeded our time for by a few minutes. Uh, and I'd like to thank everyone for participating and uh, Peter for hosting. And um, uh, I hope you enjoyed this session. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye.